I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Anik. He identifies as intersex and had phalloplasty. Let's talk about it. All right. Well, I'm so, so excited for this conversation. We're hanging out with Anik, um, who's joining us all the way over from London. And uh, Anik, um, uh, I, I came across your story uh, through some kind of article. I don't remember where it was from exactly, um, but it was a fascinating article about your experience as an intersex man. And uh, the article... Um, kind of uh, the focus of the article was about, I believe, a BBC documentary um, that mm-hmm. you were a part of that was diving into like the world of phalloplasty, which was uh, something that was new to me. I wasn't really familiar about and took a deep dive and it was wildly fascinating. Um, and so, uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you for joining us to to sit down with us and talk to us um, about uh, a v- variety of different things, but but in particular intersex, which is something that we've never had an opportunity to touch on on the podcast yet. And uh, I'm really, really excited to talk about this because um, as far as I'm aware, um, and, and probably I, I'm probably wrong in assuming that you are the first intersex person I've spoken to, but as far as I'm, I'm aware, you are, because uh, I've, I've never met someone who is uh, identified as intersex. So... I'm saying intersex a lot. Maybe there's somebody out there listening who's like, what the fuck does that mean? Uh, so I'm going to hand it over to you, Anik. First of all, who are you? Uh, and, uh, and maybe give us a little bit of insight into uh, what intersex means. Awesome. Thank you. So intersex is a very complex and also very easy area at the same time. And I think it's easy for me to start at the beginning of um, explaining it through my story. So yeah. As soon as I was born, they couldn't tell whether I was a boy or a girl. Now, some people might be thinking, how on earth can that happen? But actually, it is something that could happen to anyone. Um, Because when we are in the womb, um, for the first at least up to 7 to 12 weeks, um, our bodies all look the same, regardless of what our genitalia looks like in the end. Mm. So what essentially happens with anyone who is intersex is that somewhere along the line, something changes or doesn't change and the development of their body will be quite different. So intersex is essentially an old medical term which has been reclaimed and it means someone is born with a variation in their sex development that doesn't fit what we would typically expect or see in um, a male or a female body. But at the same time, it also has this complex notion of challenging what we mean by male and female. Mm. So it's all about someone's sex characteristics. So people will often learn in school that sex is something really simple, and they'll probably say it's to do with your chromosomes and your genitals. Mm -hmm. 
But what they won't realise until, you know, you go and study sex, um, well, study sex at a a higher level, um, is that it's so much more complicated than that. And our sex characteristics include not only our chromosome patterns, which, you know, aren't just XX and XY, but some people will have a combination of the two, or XXY or XO, or there are so many variations Mm. of chromosome patterns. And it's like a code to the body, and the body then responds to certain things. Now, most of the time, people with XY chromosomes also have a functioning SRY gene. And all of this stuff is beginning to get a bit more complicated, as you can see. Mm -hmm. So people don't really learn about it in this great detail. But what the purpose of the SRY gene is, is when you have XY chromosomes, it actually activates how androgens um, respond in your body. So when you think about things like testosterone, you hear all the time that it's a male hormone, but actually everyone has testosterone. It's the SRY gene that actually impacts how your body responds to it. So in my case, I have something called partial androgen insensitivity syndrome, which is a medicalized way of saying my body just responds to those hormones in a different way, which meant my genitalia didn't really develop as other boys did. So for my parents in particular, I was their third child. So I always like to make this joke to them that they had a girl, they had a boy, and then they had a, a thing in between that they weren't really sure about. They wanted a little um, bit of both, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't decide. Um, and so I was born premature. And at first they were like, oh, maybe it's because he's born premature. Um, maybe that's why his genitals look like that. Um, but When they took me out of the womb, because I was born at like 27 weeks or extracted, I would say, Mm. um, they were like, we don't actually know whether this is a boy or a girl. Hmm. Um, Because um, my urethra wasn't at the tip of my penis. I had a full slit um, and my testes were actually still up in my abdomen, which also both of those things is called hyperspadius. Hmm. And then having undescended testes, both of those things are the most common um, kind of conditions that happen to boys when they're born. Um, they occur at different rates. So, and each one has different degrees of um, how severe it might be, for example. So they did some tests and they were like, okay, you've got XY chromosomes. And they spoke to my parents and said, so we think this child is a boy. Um, and my mum was really out of it. She wasn't very well. So Ooh. my dad, who didn't really speak English much, was kind of in charge of everything. So he just went along with what the doctors were saying. And the doctors said, we will need to do some surgeries to fix the appearance of the genitalia, but it shouldn't be a problem. Um, And so since the age of four months old, so technically um, they waited for me to get to the nine month stage when I should have been born. And then a month afterwards, Um, So I was in hospital that whole time. And then they did some surgeries to basically bring my testicles down from my abdomen to further below. And then they did a series of surgeries until I was five years old to basically make it look like I had a functioning penis. Mm. Um, So you can tell that it's very complicated straight away. But that's just my experience. And and those those surgeries early on, um, like what kinds of surgeries are they are they doing? Like what? You know, you were saying that you you had um, uh, uh, hypospadias, which is actually something that mm-hmm. we we covered uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, sort, I mean, not on purpose, but sort of like in preparation for this conversation, which mm-hmm. I, I didn't actually know that that was something that you had dealt with. Um, 
Uh, so, so like, you know, with a, with such a young, uh, human, uh, mm-hmm. doing these, these surgeries on the genitalia, um, what did those surgeries look like? Like, what are they, what, what are they trying to achieve there? Um, and like, what, what are they hoping is the end result? Yeah. So in the case of intersex surgeries, they were actually called normalizing surgeries originally. Oh, wow. And the whole purpose was that they wanted to make our bodies look more normal. Um, but Intersex is an umbrella term. So for each different variation of which I've got one, there's like over 40 different ones. Hmm. Um, Doctors want to classify in different ways. And through history, things like hyperspadius only occurs in males, according to doctors. So therefore, you know, even in ancient Greece, they were thinking about ways to um, get surgeries performed for hyperspadius. Glad I wasn't born then because... Surgery during ancient Greek times would probably would not have been fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would have been but a real p- low success in, rate. I yeah. Guess. <laughs> yeah, true pain in the dick. So, yeah. <laughs> what what they would end up doing is um, they take the foreskin or skin from somewhere else and they close up the hole or the slit and mm. recreate your urethra, so you can pee from the tip of the penis. Mm-hmm. Now there are two main reasons why someone would want to do this for a child. One is because apparently boys need to be able to pee standing up. And the second one is overrated, by the on. way, I, I, very much <laughs> highly overrated. Over, highly yeah, overrated. Yeah, it feels great to just sit and take a piss. Yeah. And then the second one is um, when a child grows up and they are heterosexual in a heterosexual relationship and they want to have a child, they need to be able to ejaculate into a vagina. Sure. So it's a functional thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the history of hyperspadia surgeries. But the complicated thing around insects is terminology there are so many different words that people use and a lot of people who even may have the same variation as me don't like the word intersex sure so they might call it something else Mm. and in 2006 it went from being intersex to differences or disorders of sex development Mm. so you know it becomes complicated because there are now generational differences between um, people who essentially have similar body types but no consensus around what language to use um, and how care should work. So I didn't know the word intersex until I was older, um, and I was born before they used the words DSD. So I kind of knew words like hyperspadius and things like that, Mm. but essentially I had no idea there were other people out there who had bodies like me, Um, and I was seen by a doctor every six months for my entire life until I turned, like, 21. Oh, my goodness. Um, And they were all just... Um, it was always a mix of um, surgeons and pediatricians and sometimes students. And um, particularly as a child, before I learned about intersex and the fact that I'm not alone, I genuinely thought I was some kind of medical mystery and yeah, that it was my duty yeah. to kind of help people. So I needed to let all these people look at my body um, huh. and they would measure my penis and look at the way my genitalia looks and constantly comment on it all the time. Um, So I had a very specific childhood and adolescence where it was focused on my genitalia. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to hear you say, and and I'm really curious to kind of get into into this, but to hear you say that you felt like you almost had a duty um, Mm -hmm. is is very fascinating to me Um, because that, that, that leads me to believe that there was like, there was at least a part of you that felt like, um, okay, well, this is, this is the situation that I've been dealt. Uh, this is something that I have to go through. And, 
and I feel like wording it that way, um, I mean, I I would assume that wording it that way probably helps you uh, sort of conceptualize what's going on and Mm -hmm. make it maybe a little bit less traumatic than maybe it would be for someone who wouldn't term it as like, I have a duty to, to, to do this for, you know, the, for posterity and the, and the greater good of science. But I, Mm. I can only imagine that, that, you know, living your life from, from basically birth to 21 years old, having doctors, you know, investigating and poking and prodding around on uh, your genitals, like that's, that's gotta be a, a, a traumatic experience. Um, and and having so much focus on on your on your genitals um, at such a young age, mm. um, you know, I, th- I think I like you know. But Taylor and I were both. You're you're not uh, you don't identify as intersex, right? I've never no. actually asked you. I don't think I've seen your penis. Um, uh, really? You, I don't know. Maybe I have. You've seen mine, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, but like us growing up, we for sure. I know that I had like a fascination with my with my junk. Like I'm always looking at it. I was always playing with it. Um, but that was just me. Right. Mm. Um, uh, to, to have one thing that I did go through when I was 16 was I had to, I had, I had phimosis. So I had to, I had to be Mm -hmm. circumcised at 16 and that was a pretty, that, that, I mean, it didn't fuck me up, but it, but it most certainly was an experience that, uh, shook me at the time. And, you know, one of the things that sticks out to me is like a, a moment in time that, uh, that I think about today and I wonder how it sort of shaped how I feel about my body or, or what I think about my body now as a grown 34-year-old adult was um, after that surgery, you know, at 16, my mother's a nurse and having to have my mom like apply cream to my penis as a 16-year-old, you know, like that age where you're just like, you don't even want to like tell your mom you love her or like give her a kiss because it's like too embarrassing. But I had my mom like, you know, handling my penis and like putting medicine on mm. it. And and that was a really, um, I wouldn't go so far as to say it was a traumatic event for me, but it was definitely an event that was like... You felt deeply uncomfortable. With. Yes, absolutely. And so, so you know, hearing you tell us the, the story, Anik, um, I, I can't help but imagine that although, mm. you, although you saw it as like a duty, um, I'm, I'm curious to know like how did, how... In retrospect, how do you think that that had a uh, sort of played on your m- your mental health and and your your own like mental views on yourself, mm-hmm. um, like socially as a child growing up through that through that time period? So I think anyone with a variation of sex development, which is uncommon, will probably have um, a similar experience if they knew when they were little that something was different. Mm. Which is they would keep it a secret and. Um, in some ways, because they knew at birth, I'm quite lucky because I didn't have to hide it from my family. But the thing is, not all intersex people or people with variations of sex development will know that they're intersex at birth. Like some Mm -hmm. people actually find out later on in life when they're going through puberty and things change or when they're an adult or when they get access to the medical records. Mm. Um, So in my situation, I was quite lucky in many ways, although back then I didn't think that. I was a very, very moody child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I developed quite a, um, a strange fractured self, I'd say. I, On one hand, I was constantly performing for attention. Um, so um, I would try and do whatever I could to make everyone else think I was happy. 
But inside, I was very depressed. Like, one of my earliest memories was trying to open a bottle of bleach because I just didn't want to live. And that was, like, when I was, like, five or something. Oh, my goodness. Um, And, like, I couldn't get to it, so I just had to drink fairy liquid instead. And, you know, it was, like, um, there were so many times in my childhood where I just didn't ever want to be alive. Mm. Um, Or so I thought. Um, And I think... My parents never really understood it. So I come from um, an Indian background, um, Indian heritage, but my parents were born in East Africa and they primarily view themselves as African um, because that's the culture they grew up with. Um, But what I've learned growing up is that their culture that they preserved from the Indians was from their grandparents. So it's kind of like my family have this weird time capsule of old mentality of thinking about sex and bodies Mm. and things like that. So we didn't talk about stuff at home Mm. um, before I was born. And then suddenly I was born and my family were having conversations, um, but particularly only with me. So my brother and sister, who are both older than me, still find it really cringe. So the documentary you mentioned earlier Mm. is a Channel 4 production. um, And you'll see how awkward the rest of my family are if you ever watch that film. They absolutely hate talking about my penis. Whereas um, (laughs) this is my second documentary because I made a film with the BBC about me meeting other intersex people for the first time when I thought I was going to end surgeries because my experience has been so heavily medicalized, but I didn't really ever understand it or try to understand it until I was an adult. Um... And no one ever gave me, like, psychological support or anything like that. And Mm. when I talked about being fractured and hiding parts of myself, um, at 14, when I did have an overdose to try and end my life, what ended up happening was um, when mental health people intervened, I lied to them about why I did it. I just said, oh, I didn't know how many I took. Because by that point, I was like, I don't want to get in trouble. Mm. Um, But... One of the things that will always haunt me um, was something that a nurse said, um, which was when I was waking up, um, they were behind a curtain, so I couldn't tell who it was. But they said, oh, if I had a body like that, I probably would have tried to kill myself too. And that was the first thing I woke up to. Um, And I think that's actually, in hindsight, the thing that changed me um, most. Um, But yeah, it's... I was very cruel to my parents, I think, growing up because I expected my parents to know everything and Mm. be able to have found the information that I found as an adult. But it's very different when you've never learned about this kind of stuff before. Um, And when you have a baby, you it's the first question people ask, oh, is it a boy or a girl? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of pressure there. And there are no accurate statistics on how many people are impacted by this because we don't necessarily register a baby as intersex there are some places in the world that do but even then that's not helpful because they have very strict definitions of what counts as intersex and definitions and medical consensus changes over time as well so a lot of the time i've just had to become really academic and learn a lot of stuff um, and it, I think it comes across in the way I talk about it as well. I try and distance myself as if it's not my body. And then I'm like, oh, hold on a minute. This is me.
Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. Over the span of your life being kind of like proked and prodded by the medical system mm-hmm. up until the age of 21, did you, did you, because that's such a long period of time and because medical practices change and social norms change yeah. and all that stuff, like, mm-hmm. did you, did you notice a change in the way that you were treated or the way that um, that the medical system sort of like went about treating you or speaking with you about what you what you needed or what they thought you needed because it sounds mm-hmm. like it sounds like your surgeries are like a mix of of cosmetic things due to social norms um, mm-hmm. uh, and like you know kind of like gender norms and then also some functionality mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some some you know necessary medical uh, things that might need to in order, in order to function properly or to avoid yeah. maybe a medical problem down the road like what did you see over that time horizon of dealing with the medical system and like how did it change yeah so well after 2006 things were meant to change for people who were intersex or had a difference of sex development and this was on a global scale there was meant to be multidisciplinary teams where people had like social workers and psychologists and endocrinologists mm. and this whole team of specialists who would answer questions, but they only focus on the more complex cases. So I was born before that, um, so I didn't benefit from that. And I don't actually know in practice in the world if um, they are working as well as they should be working, because when I read the data and the evidence, it doesn't really show that they are working. And the reason is a lot of the time, the people who are specialists in this area are urologists and surgeons. And therefore, what do surgeons like to recommend? Further surgery. Mm. So I think for me, it took a long time to understand or even comprehend that this was uh, not always functional and it was cosmetic. Um, So to begin with, um, doing a lot of the surgeries before I was um, even five years old meant as my body grew, things needed changing and updating. Sure. you know, things change. Mm-hmm. So um, I lived with UTIs, like really uncomfortable um, urinary tract infections for so long. Um, and like, I couldn't go to school sometimes because it was that painful. Yeah. Um, and I kept getting them over and over again. And my GPs were like, oh, well, we don't know why you keep getting them. It wasn't until I was 21 and they were doing my phalloplasty, the first stages of it, that they found decomposed tissue from one of the original surgeries from when I was like five oh, or wow. under. And when they removed that, I've literally in the past, so I'm 28, uh, 27 now, I've literally had probably like two or three um, UTIs in that entire time. So I was living with so much pain because they did a surgery that I didn't actually even need at that point. Mm. You know, I didn't need to be able to um, procreate in the same way, like ejaculate into a vagina or anything like that. I still peed sitting down when I was a kid because my mum said it's easier for me to do that and it was just natural for me, so I did that. So 
I don't know. I just, it took me and I think my parents a long time to realise I wasn't actually sick, um, that it was mm. just a difference in the way my body was. But it's kind of like I was made sick in yeah. a way when these <coughs> surgeries <coughs> went wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah by I the medicalization like, of it. Like, I don't, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I'm, you know, I'm so far removed from being a person of authority on anything medical or what somebody or anything at all, really. or anything at all, really. Yeah. Uh, or but somebody, what what somebody might need in terms of like of necessary medical intervention. But it seems to me that the mm-hmm. that the most that the most important and the like the most glaringly important thing would be would be psychological support. Mm-hmm. Would be would be mm-hmm. would be help with understanding identity. <laughs> I mean, yeah. ide- identity. I think it's to it's it's come to the fore very much so over the last um, you know close to a decade now. But you know if you were going to really sort mm-hmm. of think about the nature of of you know the human condition, identity has been at the core of our philosophical sort of pursuit f- since yeah. we could think. Um, and 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 when I think when you said it earlier, when when. People have children. It, the first question is boy or girl. So we we sort of we sort of have created the like the two biggest baskets that we've sorted ourselves into mm-hmm. as humans over 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 you know the, the course of human history is these two big baskets. And yeah. if you don't fit neatly into that, psychological support is going to be so important Ooh. to that. And it seems well, it seems crazy that, that it wasn't. Way. Yeah, mm-hmm. it seems crazy that. Yeah, like like I, I, I can't. It seems again, again because so my I perspective is modern. Yeah. Yeah. Well, essentially, they thought by fixing our bodies, it would fix the problem, so yeah. we wouldn't need psychological support. They right. thought that it's easier to change the individual um, and allow them to fit into society, so they don't feel different, um, than actually provide psychological support, but. Um, there are, it depends why it's a, it's a postcode lottery. It depends where you were born, um, what time period you were born in, um, for so many of these things and what kind of support you got growing up. Absolutely. Um, and I think when I think about what people need, it's psychosocial support. That's the main thing that would have really helped. I didn't understand phalloplasty, even though I'd been waiting for it for, I think about seven or eight years before I'd actually had it. I was put on the waiting list for it when I was about 15. Um, but I'd found it on Google. Um, I'd Googled it when I was at 10. Um, <laughs> my internet search history has always been fun. So, <laughs> you know, it's like I was really obsessed with becoming quote unquote normal. I wanted to really fit in. Um, but you just end up replacing one set of problems for another. And yeah. that's really what I didn't realize about phytoplasty that actually I'm going to have to end up talking to future partners and everyone else about um, what phalloplasty is. And a lot of those articles are written so poorly. Um, I did not grow a penis on my arm. That is not what it is. Like, it's so bizarre the way they write about it. Um, But it's a lot of that is to do with clickbait and actually the fact that it's a very complex procedure. It's fun for people to think that I grew a penis on my arm, but yeah, yeah that's not what happened. Interesting. So is a very complex procedure. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Because so, <clears throat> so when we first came across your, your story, um, and again, I, I wish I could remember the art, like the, the, um, 
where the article came from could have been the guardian there was, or something there was a few. it was it was lad bible um which was one of them and yeah. then the daily mail which it, yeah very clickbaity both Probably of those ones. Yeah, yeah i yeah. hope you didn't get it from the daily mail <laughs> yeah. i mean uh it, it's it's it, i i do actually think it might have been the lad bible one but um but that that was the thing so we, we we were talking about this on the show and that was the thing that we were so fascinated by this idea that uh you could grow a penis on an arm um and mm-hmm. and and where that conversation ended up going was you know we were talking about uh, again us not knowing jack shit about fuck uh thinking like okay yeah grow a penis on an arm that's a what a wild thought um you know you just like harvest this thing for nine months unwrap it and then attach it to yourself and bing bang boom you're done and and the conversation went into a direction because we had just also been talking about uh one of the first ears that were uh Mm -hmm. grown uh, uh from human tissue in like a petri dish and so we were like why wouldn't you know, why couldn't phalloplasty be like that where we grow, uh, you know, we grow a penis in a lab or, or even like, you know, a 3d printed pre penis or whatever. Like, you know, we, we, we just went so far down the rabbit hole of like, what does it mean to there's people working on all that stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I I would love to kind of get into phalloplasty because, um, Mm -hmm. because I'm sure uh, if anyone was just listening to this show that all they took from us was what we were taking from these, these like ludicrous Mm -hmm. articles. And what you just told us was not correct at all. Yeah. 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 (laughs) yeah, Compared to what we were saying, uh, we, we were definitely not correct there. So, um, um, and, and the other thing that I would love to kind of talk about too, and, and this was in the article, um, which I thought was really fascinating, was the 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 dialogue and the and the the, the sort of relationship between your phalloplasty and your mother and mm-hmm. and what I gathered was that there was like it seemed like there was almost more of a pressure, like your mother wanted the phalloplasty maybe a little bit more than you did, and and perhaps that had to do with this notion of like once the problem is fixed, Anik will be okay, um, mm-hmm. and and so I'm I'm curious to know like. What what that was all about, but before we get into that, maybe you can just give us um give us the the real lowdown on what is phalloplasty. How does it work? And for you specifically, what were what were the ins and outs of of how you ended up mm-hmm. um uh, maintaining a, or or or, or, or uh, securing a, a a brand new penis? Yeah. So phalloplasty, first of all, is um, a three stage procedure and. It is something that has still um, not been perfected. It's something that they started doing a bit off um, in like probably about 60, 70 years ago. So it's still in its infancy in terms of um, medical and surgical procedures. And I think that's why a lot of people just don't understand it, aside from the fact they probably would never have heard of it. But it's a common procedure for a variety of different people. So the most common reason someone would have phalloplasty, um, I'd say, is someone who's had some kind of penile trauma. So if you think about mm-hmm. veterans and people who have been in the army or have had some kind of problem um, and lost their penis or parts of it, it will be the same surgery. And then the next most common one is trans men. So someone mm. who um, is a trans man might decide if they would like to um, have phalloplasty to basically have that procedure. So what they end up doing is taking skin from somewhere on your body. So it could be your arm, which is what they did for me. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm just showing you my scar. Yeah. Um, or they could take it from your thighs or anywhere else um, which they think is most appropriate depending on your body. Mm. So they take the skin and then they create a tube within a tube. So they take a huge chunk of skin, so right down to the arteries. Um, and then that's essentially what will become the penis. The reason they use the arm is because there's already a vein there um, that can maintain the blood flow so that they can um, keep the penis alive, the phallus that they've created. Mm. So the difference between a penis and a phallus is the phallus is the shape. So that's why they call it a phalloplasty. Right. Because technically, if we were going into semantics, it's not a penis. But, you know, it is at the sure. same time. Sure. So they take skin from either your thighs or your arm and then they will keep it there whilst they're fixing things in the bottom. So wherever, um, whatever your genitalia looks like at that time, they will try and maintain as much um, tissue as possible so that you can still have some kind of sensation. But um, the actual phallus they create, you can't usually feel that. Like, I think it's some people, I think it's as low as 50% or as high, depending on how you want to market it. Sure. But you can't actually feel the thing because you can't grow new nerve endings quickly and maybe over time something will happen where you can feel it so they then attach it to your genitals whatever's there or they create something for you and you have a pump and that's made up of cylinders one or two and there's a reservoir filled with water and the reservoir goes inside your where your testicles are so if you already have testicles it's just like a third one so now i have a third ball and then there's like um, a reservoir of water that's inside your bladder. And whenever I pump the ball, that's where my testicles are, the water goes from the bladder into the cylinders and that makes the penis stand up so it looks erect. Wow. And then the final stage of the surgery is more aesthetic. It's about making sure it looks like a penis and make sure, making sure the pump works. So... It's a very, very complex procedure. And um, I had it done by experts, but obviously there's so many things that can go wrong at any given time. So the film that was in for Channel 4 followed three of us who'd had the same surgery, but had had different outcomes in a way. Mm. Um, I was left with a lot of pain um, because they tried to preserve some tissue, but now all I feel is pain when it comes to my genitals and my option is that I can either have no sensation whatsoever and then it really is just aesthetic or I can deal with the pain and see if eventually it becomes a bit more pleasurable over time because Ooh. the nerves can start to repair themselves with the other gentleman who um, was in that same film um, they couldn't attach the phallus onto his genitalia because um, of some kind of blood flow issue and so they left it attached to his arm and for whatever reasons he missed a series of appointments and the pandemic happened so he was left with the phallus on his arm for like six years oh, oh my god so that film is called the man with the penis on his arm right um and my story was put in there as well as someone who's a trans man and it was just to show how very different one procedure can look for very different people. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a very complex thing because um, I thought that it's a three-stage procedure and 
that's what it means. It's going to be done in three surgeries. Um, and they managed to do a lot of the three stages in one go for me. So when I woke up from surgery, I was really excited thinking, oh, wow, this is great. I don't need to keep coming back. But turns out that's not how it works, because as um, science progresses and technology <coughs> improves, they'll need to go in and replace the cylinder or replace things. So mm. essentially, I've, se- I've signed up to lifelong <laughs> surgery again without right. necessarily knowing. Now, if I was trans in many countries in the world, I would have had to go through so much therapy and people trying to determine whether I should have the right to have this surgery. But if you are born and assigned male at birth and observed to be male, whatever they declare as male, they see it as they're just correcting a problem. They're just fixing something. So you you, you get a free pass. Yeah, right. Get a free pass. And the amount of times I asked, even today, like to these days, is there someone I can talk to? They're like, oh, not really. There isn't anyone that deals with this except from a trans perspective. And I've never seen myself as a woman or seen myself as not a man. I've just thought I'm a different kind of man. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's probably, there's probably, there's, there's got to be some crossover at least in terms of like the idea that, uh, uh, the uh, kind of how, as you were speaking there, the question that was kind of brewing in my mind was like how how your experience growing up and your experience mm-hmm. with surgeries and your experience with this surgery, like how does that, how has it influenced your sense of identity and where mm-hmm. you fit on the spectrum of, of sex and gender? Yeah. 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 So yeah. my parents, um, <laughs> always, always raised me as a boy. Um, but they did it in a very relaxed and neutral way. Um, I think there's some elements of just being working class. The fact that, um, I had lots of hand-me-downs, but I, had very long hair some um, throughout my childhood um, and I would wear dresses and things um, but I would also wear boys clothes as well and it was never it was my parents don't really have a concept of gender either it's kind of just like well sex is a reality it's what people tell you you are um, everything else is your personality because mm. who are we to say that confidence is a masculine trait and Ooh, who are right. we to say that yeah being caring is a feminine trait. It's all societal. So although they wouldn't frame it in those words, that's how my parents brought me up. They would never frame it like that. Yeah, okay. I was going to say that seems very like, like from a, from a cultural, from a cultural standpoint, that seems like incredibly progressive like progressive, but you said that they didn't really necessarily frame it that way. It was just kind of like an attitude. They didn't frame it that way. Um, Yeah. And when I, when I said to my mum a few years ago, yeah, I think you raised me in quite a neutral way. She was offended. She was like, what does that mean? Ooh. I was like, it's it's not yeah. an offensive thing. I was just saying you did a good job. And she goes, oh, yeah. now you think I've done a good job. So it's like, there's a lot of tension there. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, it's my mum herself was like um, a tomboy, she would describe herself as growing up. Um, and yeah, my, my I just don't know. It's... Gen- I never really thought about gender until I started studying it. And the more I studied it, I was like, this is just irritating. Um, yeah. I don't really care enough about it. Yeah. It seems like, um, it seems like I- I'm, I I just had a baby four months ago and I'm, and like the qu- like questions of like parenting and everything is, mm-hmm. is very, is, uh, it, you know, they're swirling in my mind and, it, and it is, it is really, really fascinating from a parenting standpoint about when you are, uh, meeting people or, um, you know, people meeting your baby and all of the, all of just like the, the assumptions that are made or, 
like little things and like nothing that's like mm-hmm. nothing, nothing offensive and nothing, um, nothing like intentionally, uh, um, derogatory or anything like that, but like just the simple, uh, simple, like the other day I was walking down, uh, was like standing, uh, standing on the boardwalk downtown and, and, uh, my daughter was wearing, uh, was wearing a, something blue, I think. And someone just mm-hmm. said like, Hey, like how old's the little fella or like something like stuff, you know, st- stuff like that, that you just kind of like, that you just kind of realize like there's so many associations that we've made, like just color, mm. like mm. the amount of things that yeah. my, that my mother-in-law, like my mother-in-law will like basically only buy our daughter pink. Mm. And, 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 and it's just yeah. these, like these, like these things that we associate with, with gender and well, sex that are, that just mm-hmm. like are, are so not neutral that seem that as a p- new parent, I'm going, Oh, it's so interesting. Cause I just wouldn't associate it with anything. I would just go like, does this, do you like this? Does this look, do you think that this looks good? Yeah. Or do you feel good in this? Like that sort of thing. You know, that would be great if more parents did that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think, Color is interesting because when you think about pink and blue, originally it was swapped around. It was pink was mm. for boys and blue was for girls because pink was seen as a strong masculine color mm. and blue was seen as a calm, gentle color, which should be used for girls. And I'm talking specifically in Britain and America. I don't know mm. if that was similar in Canada, but probably the early likely, yeah. 1900s. Yeah. Um, so society can change a lot um, in short periods of times where suddenly people start buying these clothes which have really strange messages on them and it's like what are you trying to say about your child like um if you look at how gendered children's clothes are in general um boys t-shirts um tend to say things that are like i am a leader i am powerful or superstar or things like that and girls will say have a fantastic day and beautiful and have like really ridiculous like things so we're socializing our children in a specific way but like you mentioned most people don't do it um out of a conscious intention to be rude or anything it's kind of just they think it they it's the normal thing to do it's the right thing to do so um I don't know how to change that. And I don't know why my generation in particular is so fussed with gender reveal parties and yeah, yeah. Um, all of this other stuff. Like, I I have been to two gender reveal parties and I'm just there like, you guys are my friends. You've seen my documentaries. <laughs> I think yeah. about my genitalia all the time. Yeah. And yeah. you're still doing this? Yeah, you're like, this yeah. seems strange to you. Like, yeah. it does, it has always, it has always fascinated me. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, the just like the... The 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 paths that we have carved for yeah. and like, like and just celebrate becoming care- parents. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the, the fact you're having a child. Yeah, yeah. They, don't they, celebrate the genitalia of your child, especially because you don't actually know yeah. um, what it's gonna actually end up looking like when the baby's born, but also later on in life. So with some intersex variations or variations of sex development, um a child may completely look like they um are a girl. Um they will probably be registered as a girl at birth and then they get to puberty and because of their variation realize that actually they have xy chromosomes and don't have a womb or um, anything else which we usually associate with a woman Mm. and it's like that doesn't mean that they're no longer a woman or that they're suddenly a man because they are whatever they've been socialized to be and whatever they say they are Mm. and it's like when women um have to remove their um, wombs, have a hysterectomy or anything like that. They don't stop becoming women. That's right. Um, And it's like when someone says 
um, like the average penis size is 5.4 inches or 6 inches or 7 inches or whatever it is, anyone who doesn't meet that typical average size isn't suddenly no longer a man. Mm. So it's, it's very strange to me that in my situation, um, they were like, this penis is too small for to qualify as a boy. So mm. they actually gave my parents a choice um, somewhere between the ages of two and three. Do you want to make some changes so that we can raise this child as a girl? Right. And how strange would that be for my <clears throat> entire family? Mm, right. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I don't what? know if they still do that. I would say they probably don't still do that. Was there a reason that when you went through with your phalloplasty that you chose to have a phallus that was 23.5 inches? <laughs> uh, well, make it, it make it come out of the bottom of my shorts. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like like all jokes aside, though, the like the and I don't know how it works specifically, but like with the with the. Uh, the procedure, but like the scar on your arm is uh, that's a that's a sizable so scar. Do, you do get to basically choose the size oh do you um, yeah <laughs> yeah you can um and depending on your surgeon actually and depending on their skill and if you have enough tissue in that first place yeah. so depending mm. on how big your arm is or something like that right how did you um, come to they, make the, the, the decision like what, like what was the process this is of- where my mum comes into it and this is ah. where it gets awkward for a lot of other people okay so <laughs> it started off as a joke we were filming for my bbc documentary um back in the day before i'd actually had the procedure And my mum was sat beside my um, surgeon, who she kind of fancied at the same time. She thought he was really cool because he was fixing everything in her life that she thought was a problem. Um, And he's like, so how big do you want to go? And I was like, I don't know. That's such a weird question. Yeah, totally. I've never really thought about it. Um, And then she was just like, big, big, big. And she did it as a joke. Um, and I found it hilarious because me and my mum have that relationship yeah. where we will joke about these kind of things. Um, and so, yeah, they just, they took, I was like, I'm not that bothered as long as it's not as small as it is right now. Because I was so fixated on not being small anymore. Yeah. Because my penis, when I was growing up, was very small. But also it started to go inwards the more I grew up. Mm. Um, so at times it wouldn't even look like a penis. So, Mm. um, it was very different later on in life. As soon as I woke up from the surgery, I had the opposite problem. Um, and I remember when the swelling was going down and it was getting smaller, I was so freaked out. I was like, oh my (laughs) God, it's shrinking again. What is going on? I have the worst luck. But yeah, the original like conversation, they tend to go for like, whatever tissue they can get and the average size but they are more concerned with how it looks and if you can use it to pee standing up um and um the impact on your Mm. social well-being and i did immediately feel better about myself as soon as i'd had this done which was surprising to me Hmm. because i'd spent so long trying to convince myself that your genitalia doesn't matter or things like that but suddenly when you wake up overnight and everything's changed this was before the pain all kicked in and I was like, was this the right decision? Yeah. I was very happy. I was like, suddenly everything's gonna gonna change in my life in a great way. Um, and I remember the first time I went to pee standing up using the new penis. Because uh, what happens is when they create the phalloplasty, um, they have to create the urethra again so that you can pee from the tip of the penis. So... <clears throat> It went wrong. Um, they didn't have enough tissue. So they kind of 
created a hole in my scrotum where I originally had, like when I was born. Right. Um, so for, I think about six or seven months after the phalloplasty, I'd had it, but I still had to pee sitting down, but lifting up the new phallus they'd created. And it was essentially as if like I had hyperspadius again. Yeah. Which right. Which yeah. was a very bizarre thing. And now with this big old dong, like getting in the way. So it's like, it's it like. It get in the way. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's yeah. amazing how so so they did so they did they did do something so that you can pee out of the new penis. Yeah. So what they ended up doing is taking tissue from inside my mouth um, at a later stage because oh, wow. that's used to being wet, um, and then they repaired slash created a new urethra for me. Um, so they closed off that hole that they um, created, and then. Yeah. Um, ended up making it so that I could pee from the new phallus they'd created. But I'd had catheters for like a year or so. And you're not meant to have catheters in this particular surgery for that long because infections um, Mm -hmm. are very severe with phalloplasty because if the phallus gets infected, they just have to cut it off. Um, And that would be traumatic. I'd never go through it again. Are you you desensitized to how amazing, to to like the scientific... Uh, like, um, in, in, like incredible, the incredible nature of this, like of that, that they can give you a, 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 a new penis that pees. Yeah. Um, I'd say yes for me, but that's because I have, I probably know on par in terms of the text and history of it as much as my surgeons and me and my surgeons often talk about, mm. um, articles and things like that. I wouldn't know how to perform the procedure. Obviously I'm not a surgeon, but I, really threw myself into learning so much about phalloplasty after I'd had it because no one taught me anything, which I was mm. really annoyed about because I yeah. was like, I've agreed to all this stuff. I don't have a therapist or anyone to bounce anything off. Yeah. So I just, you know, have all these urology textbooks and prosthetics and learning how to use it and stuff. But I didn't know when I'd had the pump installed that I have to um, keep it pumped for a certain amount of time, like every day, and then gradually keep it pumped for like every week at some point, hmm. um, just huh. so that it keeps working. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. One of the things that happened was because they didn't go out and actually tell me that, um, my I needed to have the whole thing replaced midway. Um, so after about a year or so, I was still not using it for sex or anything like that. Um, and I had to have this procedure all over again, um, where they had to take out the cylinders and fix everything because scar tissue had formed around it. Oh, wow. And I was like, well, no one told me that I needed to do it. And they were like, well, we had assumed you would just start using it. Yeah, because everyone knows if you don't use it, you lose it, right? I mean, that old adage (laughs) really stands true, I guess. (laughs) If you don't use it, the the 40-year-old virgin's uh, flashback. (laughs) Yeah, it's strange kind of thing to yeah, live with, I guess. Yeah. Hey, do, do they, um, do, you know, so you've, you've said that the, the urethra is there and so you, you, you have the ability to urinate through it, but um, do, they, do they also like connect it to the vas deferens so that you have the ability to ejaculate from the, the new phallus? Yeah, so they did um, do that for me, but I don't actually produce any sperm um, mm. because of my specific variation, which sure. again, I didn't know until later on. Um, it was one of the first things I learned about myself. I always assumed that I couldn't have children um but it was a very different thing being told by a doctor okay we've actually Mm. tested and you don't actually have the capacity to have children Mm. um my mum's biggest concern going back to my mum in all of this was she wanted me to be able to have a family and 
live a life that she recognizes. Right. Um, and I think it's another reason why I love podcasts like this, which is all about teaching people about different ways of living. Because for my mum, she just wants to be able to see how people can live their lives and be successful and have all of the other things that are different but still enjoy their life. Because mm. for her, she had no template of what my life would be like. And that's so scary as a parent. And I'm mm. sure that you, you can resonate with that. Um, not knowing what your child's future will be like or if they will even have a future. Mm-hmm. So there's like very strange things that um, my mum often did with me that she didn't do with my sister and brother. And I was very much coddled and treated as a sick child mm. um, in, in, a strange, in a strange way. Um, and it's taken a long time for me to repair that relationship with both of my parents to yeah. a way that um, I have forgiven them for agreeing to surgeries. Because for a while, I was actually very angry at them um, because I was like, why did you just say yes? Why didn't you think about anything else in terms of if it was necessary, if it could be delayed or anything like that. But I was doing it from a standpoint of someone who'd already thought about it and hadn't, you know, I'm never going to have a child biologically like that. So, you know, it's so difficult. Midwives never helped them. When my ne- um, when my mum couldn't pronounce hyperspadius, a nurse literally laughed at her. We've had a hard time with nurses, but, yeah. you know, it's... It's very difficult when you have a child born with any kind of difference to know how to deal with that because there's a sense of shame, um, mm. particularly with mothers, because they um, potentially have grownness in their womb. Um, and some of the intersex variations that are possible are like linked to a particular gene. So it's linked mm. to like the X chromosome or something like that. So there's genetic components to some of these intersex traits. Mm-hmm. So there's so much going on. You, uh, you, you've kind of touched on it a, a few times and, and, um, and, and given us some insight into it. And like, just there, I was thinking about the, like the cultural, the, the, the influence that the influence that the culture, um, of your parents has on, mm-hmm. on your, on, on your, um, like how you see the world and how they see the world for you. Um, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm, rem- I'm reminded of a conversation that we had, um, with, uh, with a woman who is a professor at McGill University here in Canada, and she is um, she's born in Canada, and her parents are are from India, and she had she had started to lose some use of her legs and had to have walking aids, and she told us the story of how of how her her father like explicitly said to her, you know, how will any how will you ever how will you ever find, how, how will somebody love you? And, Mm -hmm. and, and that, that was kind of like a, like a slight on their family that she had made because (laughs) they wouldn't be able to follow through with these cultural, um, expectations that they have. And, uh, I remember that just like really, just really breaking, breaking my heart because it kind of went against like it goes against some of the things, like the things that I think of in terms of like unconditional love. Um, and obviously (laughs) like every culture has things that are incredible. Mm -hmm. And a lot of cultures have things that are, that we look at and go, well, well, we might, we might want to get rid of that Mm -hmm. component. Um, Mm -hmm. like did, did your, 
did you sense that did was there any of was there any of that was there any sense that that there was that, loads of that but yeah, not yeah. just that's not that wasn't directed just to me everyone in my family deals with it um you know there's like if your skin is too dark how will someone love you right. if you um have too much body hair how will someone love you if you can't cook how will someone love you um and it's it comes from their experience of having an arranged marriage, I think. So my parents had an arranged marriage. They didn't choose to be with each other. And if they had a choice, I think they'd both probably not want to be with each other. Um, and if they're listening right now, yes, I'm still going on about this, even as an adult. <laughs> Go find your happiness. Um, but, you know, um, I think there are so many times where in my culture, the emphasis has been on reputation. Um, yeah, and how yeah. the family is perceived. And I remember mm. when I first said to uh, members of my family that I'm going to come out and talk about being intersex, as well as talk about being bi and talk about all of the other aspects of my um, my being, someone said to me, um, someone in my family said, well, can you just do it using your first name and not your full name? Because your full name, your surname belongs to the family. It doesn't just belong to you. Huh. So it impacts all of us. And I was like, what do you mean? They were like, well, how will your sister be able to get married? How will um, people want to be associated with us if you'd mm. go out and do things like this? And it was a difficult balance because it's very easy on one side to just be like, well, my opinion's the most important. Let's just get on with it. Yeah. Um, and when you're brought up in this kind of environment to actually prioritize your own needs first, which doesn't often feel comfortable mm -hmm. so i credit this um this group called south asian therapists um for kind of really helping me to unlearn a lot of the toxic patterns that have been repeated throughout my culture and family um and it was very confusing for me growing up because i'd have conversations with my mum and sister and brother um constantly about sex about gender about all these things and they were always very open with me. And my mum would never talk to my brother or sister about these things. So it was very confusing for me that why am I allowed to talk about it? But they aren't. Mm -hmm. But for them, it was very much, well, we need to talk about it with you because this is your experience. This is your body. Um, and there was a point where I remember these old aunties in my family were like, oh, well, they didn't know anything was different about me. I think people a lot of the time assumed I was hiding my sexuality. Um, I don't, yeah, I, I, they would assume I was hiding my sexuality. I think a lot of people in school either thought I was, I got accused so much of being bi, which I am, but then um, so much of being, trying to steal someone's boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, and because I was always elusive with my sexuality and my privates, because you don't Ooh. generally talk about your privates on a podcast or anything, but <laughs> um I think my family in general were just, they didn't know how to proceed and what mm. to do, actually do with this information. Um, and they didn't want to have this conversation amongst themselves. And I remember telling my wider cousins for the first time um, about all of this stuff. And they were like, we've known your entire life. We've never known how many times you were in hospital. We've never known any of this stuff. And it caused fights with my parents and their siblings because... They were like, how can you go through all of this and never tell us? Mm. And in my parents' defense, they were like, well, it's to do with his genitalia. Why would we tell you? It's his private parts. But then on the flip side, that whole secret keeping 
was so heavy on mm. all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that emphasis on never telling people mm-hmm. was actually reinforced so much by the doctors as well. So I was told to get tattoos to cover up um, the actual scar that I have, but I'm not going to. Um, I was repeatedly told different ways of concealing that I've had any kind of surgeries. Um, and even my school didn't know. Mm-hmm. Like there's so many different aspects of my life where I was just told being private about it is the right thing to do. And I'm hoping that someone else out there doesn't need to do the same thing or they Mm. can do it in a more conscious way and get some therapy and get some support to deal with this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, the, the, you know, the, the privacy part of it, uh, although, although it's in one way, it makes sense. Um, when, when you, when you keep those things isolated from others, it, it only, it only just opens up the person who's dealing with it to, to far more trauma because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the ways that we are able to deal with hardships in our life is to be able to have open and honest conversations with people about them. And that's how we, that, you know, that, I mean, that's what talk therapy is all about is being able to talk about the things that you find challenging and, and we don't only do that with a therapist. We need, mm-hmm. we need people in our lives to be able to do that in order to manage, you know, a host full of different things that we find challenging in our lives. So it, it is, um, it, it, it's vitally yeah. important. There's a big difference between the right to privacy and the benefit of being private. Like yes. they're like, yes. you know, I think everybody, everybody, ha- everybody deserves the right to mm-hmm. divulge or, uh, or publicize anything yeah. and everything about their life if they choose or if they don't choose. But it's another thing entirely to, to talk about how beneficial it yeah. is to be private about something. And I think, and th- my opinion, and, and I'm not saying it's the opinion, but I think that there are, there are very few things that are, that are going to be, that are, that are, that are going to be exclusively beneficial yeah. if you mm-hmm. keep them to yourself. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's the case it's, with many taboos if you think about it though mm-hmm. so a lot of this is stemmed from fear and so my goal in life um is to write a children's book um and part of that is going to be talking about the idea of shame and fear and how it doesn't actually help um Ooh. Ooh. but when i boiled down to what the reasoning that my parents had was it was fear because they didn't know what my life would look like And so um, I remember as a teenager, lots of times I would say to my mum, what about if I want to be with someone? Like, when do I have this conversation with them? At what point in our relationship? Because my parents have a very conservative view of sex where it was only like procreation, not recreation kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was not a conversation that they, or a life that they ever thought people had you know um because they based it on themselves and their friends and things and they're quite prudish even though they make jokes about sex all the time um they're uncomfortable by sex so for for my situation when I was telling them that my friends are having sex at like 13 14 15 they were like no that doesn't exist that's just in the tv shows you're watching and I'm like no you're in a bubble and all of these different things i was like you do realize that 
our grandparents and great-grandparents got married when they were like nine or ten and they ended up having kids when they were like 13, 14. That's the way it was done. And they were like, yes, but that was a different time. Nowadays, we don't do that. Yeah. So it's, yeah. I, I, I know that we're, uh, we're, we're kind of like past time here, but, but before we wrap, I would, I would love to, to just kind of dive into, um, uh, you know, dating um, uh, mm-hmm. as, as someone who identifies as intersex and, and dating specifically like uh, post-surgery. Um, how, has, how has things changed, if at all, for you in the, in the dating scene? Mm-hmm. So the biggest thing is confidence. Um, yeah. How can you not be confident with a penis this big right now? So it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we unfortunately live in a world where size is so important to lots of different people. And I wish it wasn't. Yeah. Um, and I wish I could say that I've evolved as well, being on both sides of it. But I'm still very annoyed at myself at how size has impacted my life. But it made such a big difference um, for me in my confidence so I wish I had that confidence before the surgery because I probably maybe would never have decided to go for the surgery. But yeah. having a life where everything was so fixated on the size of my penis meant that this was my solution. Um, so I think it's a very complex dating world anyway. Um, and it's been fun and also not fun. I'd never know when to bring it up. I've had one serious relationship um so far and um they'd never seen my documentary or anything but they knew that i'd had phalloplasty because i'm very open about it so we started dating but they already knew and there have been other times where i've been on dates and not told them and we've got been dating for a while seeing each other and then i tell them and then they no longer want to be with me for that reason so, like, I've had girls say to me that they just want to be with someone with a real penis. And then it, that's when it's like, hold on, but what's a real penis? Yeah. If it was, I'd understand if it's a fertility thing or if it's something else. And for some people, um, they don't want to date me because I'm so open about this. They're like, I don't mind that you've got a body like this, but I don't want everyone to know because what does it mean about my sexuality? Yeah. And I'm like, well, I'm still a man. Mm. So however you identify your sexuality is up to you. Being intersex doesn't mean that I'm no longer a man. Mm. It just complicates the way we see men. Yes. And there are intersex men and there are intersex women and there are people who just view themselves as intersex and maybe non-binary. And they might view intersex as their sex. But it's really such a personal thing. And you don't know anything by just ticking that label. For example, if someone was to say I'm disabled, what does that actually mean? Mm. What kind of adjustments do you need? What What is your actual experience? There are so many different disabilities that exist, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's difficult when you're trying to get into a relationship because I don't know when to be open or how open to be yet because I don't want to scare people off because that whole fascination with phalloplasty can go one of two ways. It can be a really, oh, I can't wait to see it kind of thing or it can be a, oh, I'm no longer interested in you, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. No longer interested in being with you. And I remember asking someone once um, the next day if they'd noticed something was different, because with someone I tried never saying anything. Um, and I told them afterwards, and they were like, well, it felt a bit different and weird, but I didn't want to say anything. Mm. And then I explained it to them, never saw them again. Um, but a lot of that had to do with, obviously, the fact that I didn't, 
tell them straight up. Sure. So then, but it's really interesting because I don't know how much of myself is owed to a person. Yeah. Um, I think if I'm going to be intimate with someone, they should know. Yeah. Um, that's a lesson I've learned myself because um, it's something I'd like to know about someone. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you'll ever... Time, because it's so scary to people who've never heard of it, it can change things. Yeah. I, I don't know if you'll, I, I don't know if you'll ever really get the, get a, get a firm answer on that because I think it's always going to depend on the person that yeah. you're, yeah. that you're sharing that with. In, in one, in, I mean, in one aspect it does, it does act as a really wonderful filter, you know, like in terms yeah. of finding someone that actually cares. Um, mm-hmm. It is one of those things that, and, and which, which, which comes with its ups and downs and it's not, it's, it's, it's not necessarily like the best thing, but um but it, in the, in the end, you know, what, yeah. maybe that day comes along where you do find love and there is a connection there. And that connection, uh, that connection it w- is there because that person understands and is, yeah. w- is willing to like meet you where you're at. And, and like, and all of that's great, but I've missed my slut era. Yes. Like, yeah. I just want to have sex. No, like, no, no. You're you never know, too young. You're never too young <laughs> to get slutty. There's a, there's, you could be a so, slut in your fifties if you wanted to be. <laughs> Slutty's yeah, a state. Jerry always says slutty's a thing. state of mind. Yeah. Slut's a state of mind. That's right. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been in my mind for too long. I need to make it a practice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's so, right. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that me and my family always joke about all the time. Um, yeah. Uh, unlike, I love the fact that I can speak to my parents about this kind of stuff, even though my brother and sister can't or wouldn't. (laughs) Um, I don't think it's weird, but um, there was this really terrible article written about me where someone said that I showed my erect penis to my mother live on TV, which I never did. But even within the context, they never explained what intersex was. They never explained what phalloplasty was or anything like that. And I was showing my mum the phallus off something like after I'd been waiting for a particular surgery after like 20 odd years. Like it's a very big difference between yes. me showing my mum my erect penis in a sexual context. Yeah. You know? So that's a click. I don't that's know. A, that's a clickbait. Yeah. That's a little clickbait. Yeah. Yeah. Wait till you see what we yeah, need in this episode. Grudge, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a personal grudge against that journalist as well. I mean, if they can call themselves a journalist or a yeah. reporter. Yeah. Sounds um, a little sketchy. Yeah. Anik, Anik I, have, I have one final question. It's a two part question that we ask most of our guests. Um, mm-hmm. The first part is what would you say is the biggest thing that intersex has taken away from you? Cool. Um, the biggest thing intersex, being intersex has taken away from me in my personal situation is autonomy. The ability to make decisions about my own body and have that knowledge around what to do. Um, but every intersex experience is different. But for mm. me, it was my aut- autonomy. What would you say is the biggest thing that being intersex has given you? I feel like I live in between a lot of things. Um and I see things that other people don't see. And I've always liked to say, like, in a black and white world, I live in the shades of grey. Um, that's it's, it's kind of like my superpower. My friend Magda, who's an intersex activist and um, a wonderful person, has a T-shirt on it that says being intersex is my superpower. Mm. Um, and at first I used to think, oh, that's really cringy. Um, <laughs> but now I'm like, okay, I can see why someone would do that. <laughs> so yeah, you're coming, yeah, you're yeah. coming around to it. <laughs> coming around. <laughs> yeah. Well, Anik, uh, man, I gotta say that it, 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 this conversation uh, very well might be uh, my favorite conversation of the year. Um, this, y- you. y- you're, you're an absolute delight to sit down and chat with your 
your honesty and your vulnerability is is just is something to behold. We, we're so glad that you took time out of your schedule today to sit down and chat with us and give us a, a little bit of insight into your own personal experience with with being intersex and and what that means for you. Thank you so, so, so much. This has been so fun. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And, of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.